It's a special place. In 1865, a famous preacher named Philip Brooks traveled to the Holy Land. And on Christmas Eve of that year, he had the opportunity to ride on horseback from Jerusalem, about five miles southwest to the little town of Bethlehem. And on that night, Christmas Eve, 1865, they were celebrating the Savior's birth at the ancient church of the Nativity. And and Philip Brooks said later that on that night, he had an overwhelming peace fill his heart and his life. You see, 1865 was a tumultuous time. The Civil War had come to an end, and Brooks had lost many friends and acquaintances in the Civil War. The the nation was still reeling from the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, and his, his spirit was in turmoil. But on that night, as they celebrated Jesus and his birth, he speaks of the particular peace he had in that special place called Bethlehem. As a matter of fact, three years later, as he was thinking about this, he decided to write a poem for the children in his church. So he wrote down that poem that we now know and we just sang as Little Town of Bethlehem. And an organist in the church took the poem, set it into music, and the children in the church sang that hymn. And it's been a well-loved hymn in the church ever since. Philip Brooks understood that Bethlehem is a special place. And what I've been trying to do in this sermon series titled, O Little Town of Bethlehem, is to remind us all that Bethlehem is a special place. It is a place of great significance. And we've been looking at God's Word in different places to to see the significance of that place. We're going to close down our series uh, this morning by looking together at Luke chapter 2. So look there with me, Luke chapter 2. I want you to find your place, Luke chapter 2, verse 4, and then then mark it, hold it, and then turn over to John chapter 6. Luke chapter 2, verse 4, and John chapter 6, verse 35. Find both of those places in your Bible. I'm going to ask you this morning, if you're physically able, to please stand with me. In honor of the reading of God's Word. Luke 2, verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, where? Bethlehem. While they were there, The time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now turn over to John chapter 6, verse 35. The Bible says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Let's pray together this morning.
Father, we pause this morning to acknowledge our utter dependence upon you. We truly believe that all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. So Lord, I pray that as your word goes forth, as we study your word, I pray, Holy Spirit of God, that you would move in our midst. That you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see the truths of Scripture. And that we might have the the resolve to obey what we learn. to, To respond to what you show us. Would you touch hearts? Would you change lives? Would you transform us today? May we leave this place saying, Hallelujah, what a Savior. May Jesus be exalted and lifted up because it's all about Jesus. And we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, you might wonder why I would have you read the well-known Christmas narrative in Luke chapter 2 and then have you read John chapter 6 where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Those things seem unrelated or not connected. So why would I have you read both of those passages? Well, I think these two passages are reminders of the significance of Bethlehem because I want to just take a moment to explain to you what the the word Bethlehem means. Bethlehem is actually a compound word. The first part of that word is the word Beth, B-E-T-H, and that's the Hebrew word for house. Whenever you read the Old Testament, you see Beth something, it means house of, whatever the the next word is. So whenever you see Beth, it means house of. The, the second part of that word, Bethlehem, is the, or comes from the Hebrew word lechem, Bet-lechem. And lechem means bread. So Bethlehem literally means house of bread. And then in John chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Now what I want to do is I want to hone in on that passage in John 6 to show us Uh, what it means that Jesus Christ is the bread of life. This metaphor that Jesus uses conveys some wonderful spiritual truths. I want to look at these truths and tie back in to Bethlehem. So look there with me. In John chapter 6, I've got three truths about the bread of life. Three truths about the bread of life. Number one, Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Look what the Bible says in verse 33. Now, just a little bit of context before we read this verse. John 6 is a, is a fascinating chapter. Early in the chapter, Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 plus people with five loaves of bread. How many fish? Two fish. I mean, remarkable, miraculous work of Christ. And then, a little bit later, he sends his disciples in a boat across the Sea of Galilee. They get caught up in a storm, so Jesus goes to be with them. And he, the Bible says, walks on water. Just another day, right? Feeding 5,000 plus, walking on the water. Just another day. And that, that's the context. And uh, later on in chapter 6, we see that the people who were fed the bread miraculously by Christ wanted to, to find where he was and, and, and come to him again because they wanted to be wowed again. They wanted Jesus to do more miracles. They wanted more bread. They thought it was awesome. So they're hunting down Jesus so they can be wowed yet again. They find him and there are multitudes and Jesus begins to talk to them about not just bread, but the bread of life. 
and he uses it as a metaphor to convey spiritual truths. And in verse 33, he's reminding them that he saves. Look what it says in John 6, verse 33. He says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven, that's Jesus, and gives life to the world. So Jesus is saying, I'm the bread of life, and I give life to the world. Now, there are several things we learn about Jesus being the bread of life and Jesus saving sinners. Number one, we are reminded that salvation is a gift. Salvation is a gift. Look back with me to verse 32. Verse 32 Jesus then said to them, the crowd, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So he said, you shouldn't be worried about physical bread. You need to be worried about spiritual bread and understand that the spiritual bread, salvation in Christ, is given to you by the Father. It's a gift. The the word translated gives there is the Greek word didomai. It means to give an object, usually implying value. So he wants them to understand that if they experience the bread of life, they are experiencing a gift. Salvation is a gift. You can't earn it. You can't achieve it. We're all unable to live in perfection before God. We're all sinners. Our sin separates us from God. And the only way we can be saved is based upon what Jesus Christ has done for us. Jesus Christ came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. He was buried. He rose from the grave. He's alive today. And because he defeated sin at the cross, because he defeated death when he rose from the grave, he offers us forgiveness. He offers us eternal life as a gift. Not something we deserve. Not something that we can earn. But something we must receive by faith. He says, the Father's given you the bread of life. It's a gift. So salvation is a gift. Number two, salvation entails eternal life. It entails eternal life. There in verse 27, look what Jesus says. He says, do not work for the food that perishes. In other words, they wanted more loaves to fill their bellies. He says, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. So he's saying, listen, you don't need to be so worried about your, your earthly life. You're missing the point. All of this is a picture of the eternal life that God will give you through Christ. Now, in this passage, as you read through it, it's interesting to note that Jesus is comparing the bread of life with the manna that God gave the Israelites from heaven. In the Old Testament, remember, the Israelites were in the wilderness and they needed something to eat, so God would miraculously send manna from heaven. When they would wake up in the morning, this manna, this bread-like substance, would be on the ground for them to pick up and to eat and to subsist from. And he's comparing the bread of life with the manna, but he's also contrasting the bread of life with the manna. So what kind of comparisons does he make? What are some similarities between the manna and the bread of life? Well, first of all, both were gifts from God. God gave the Israelites manna, and he gives us the bread of life if we will but receive it. And and both the manna and the bread of life came from heaven. Look what it says in verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from 
heaven to eat. And then look what it says in verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from where? From heaven. So Jesus is saying, just like manna came from heaven, the bread of life, Jesus Christ, he came from heaven. He left the splendor and glory of heaven, and he came to earth to take on humanity so he could be our substitute, so he could die for our sin. So he's saying there's some similarities between the bread of life and manna. But there's one big difference. One big difference. Manna gave temporary life. Look what it says in verse 49. Fast forward to verse 49. Jesus said, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Temporary solution. The manna kept them alive for a time, but eventually these people grew old and they died. The manna was not intended to keep them alive forever. It was a temporary solution. But in contrast, the bread of life gives eternal life. Look what he says in the next verse, verse 50. He says, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that, no one, so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live how long? Forever, not temporarily. He will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus here is saying that if you receive the bread of life, it is, it is, it is life eternal. And that's different from the manna. So we learn that salvation is a gift. Salvation entails eternal life. But third, salvation is available for the whole world. Did you notice what it said in verse 33? In verse 33 it said, The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I could not read that verse without thinking about John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I believe, based on the authority of God's word, I can go anywhere in this world and walk up to any person in this world, look them in the eyes and say, God loves you. God loves the world. This gift of eternal life, this gift of bread, salvation through Christ, is available to anyone who will receive it by faith. That's what he's saying here. So what do we learn about the bread of life? We learn that Jesus saves. There's a second thing we learn. Jesus satisfies. Jesus satisfies. Notice what it says in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus here is talking about the reality that he satisfies the human soul. And here's what we learn from that. Everyone is spiritually hungry. Everyone needs the satisfaction that Christ gives. Because everyone is spiritually hungry. Everyone has a spiritual vacuum. Some say a God-sized hole in their heart. And, and because of that emptiness, they know they need something. Everyone is spiritually hungry. But here's the sad reality. Many people try to satisfy their hunger with all the wrong things. 
What are some things that people in our culture, people in our world try to fill their hunger with? Let me just give you just a quick list. It's not exhaustive, but a quick list of some things that are prevalent in our culture. Number one, material things. Our culture has gotten us to buy into the lie that if we just have more stuff or we just have newer stuff or we just have the newest thing, then we will be happy. Then we will be satisfied, right? If you don't believe me, wait until the iPhone 7 comes out. And all you folks with the iPhone 6 will say, man, I need the new phone, right? Why? Because we think we need the newest thing. And if we have the newest thing, then we'll be happy. We'll be satisfied. That will give us life. But the Bible teaches material things won't fill up that God-sized hole in your heart. Material things will not satisfy. If material things satisfied, then all of us in this room should be satisfied, right? Because we've got a lot of material stuff. We live in a land of abundance, If material things satisfy, why are there rich people, many rich people, that commit suicide? They have everything they want. Why are they so unfulfilled? Because spiritual things do not satisfy your spiritual... Material things don't satisfy your spiritual hunger. They just will not get the job done. So, many people try to satisfy their hunger with material things. Secondly, many try to satisfy their hunger with achievement. People think, if I can just, you know, climb the ladder, if I can just get a little more prestige, if I can just get my family or my friends or my colleagues to appreciate me more, if I can just get more pats on the back, if I can just climb the ladder, then I'll be happy. If I can reach my goals, then I'll be happy. If I can fulfill my dreams, then I'll be happy. Happy, And they think achievement will fill up that God-sized hole in their heart, but it doesn't work. I was astounded one time to hear Bobby Bowden say, you know Bobby Bowden, the longtime coach of Florida State Seminoles, two-time national champion, but we, you know, I'm good in that. But that's relevant, because here's what Bobby Bowden said. He said, one of the saddest moments in someone's life is when they get to the top of their profession, and they realize there's nothing there. I've heard Bobby Bowden say, he's great coach. I've heard him say, hey, I've been to the top. There's nothing there. And if you're counting on getting to the top to satisfy you, you're going to be sorely disappointed. There's nothing there. You need something more than achievement. Some people seek after relationships to try to satisfy their hunger. They think if they just have the right relationships in place and, and they're working the right way, then, then surely their life will be fulfilled. Maybe it's a romantic involvement or, or friendships or, or whatever the case may be or, or relationship restored or relationship that goes better. We think if we just have the right relationships, that'll make us happy. Now the Bible's clear, relationships are important. But have you discovered yet that we'll let each other down? I promise you, if you follow me around long enough, I'll let you down. And if I follow you around long enough, you'll let me down. Because we're finite and we are imperfect and we stumble and we fall. And and we simply cannot fill up each other's God-sized hole. It's not going to happen. Some people seek after 
pleasure, a pursuit of pleasure. They think, well, if I'll just, if I, if I just chase after the things my flesh longs after, then I'll be happy. If I get everything I want, then I'll be happy. Pursuit of pleasure. And we know that pleasure realized does not satisfy. And we know because no one has experienced more pleasure in human history than King Solomon. You can read about King Solomon. I mean, he had women. He had uh, 700 concubines, 300 wives. He had the best food in the kingdom. He had the best wine to drink. He, he pursued pleasure with reckless abandon. And in Ecclesiastes, here's what Solomon said about all that pleasure. He said, I've tried everything, I've had everything, and it is all empty. It's all vanity. Doesn't satisfy. I'd get, uh, I'd, I'd pursue pleasure and, and realize pleasure, then I wanted something more. The pursuit of pleasure will not satisfy your spiritual hunger. Some people choose busyness to distract them from their need for Christ. And that's a relevant word for our culture today, isn't it? I really believe that there are people, maybe even in this room, and they stay busy so they they won't have to think about eternal realities. They don't want to think about death. They don't want to think about eternity. They don't want to think about heaven or hell. They don't want to think about Christ. And a lot of people try to just stay busy Stay on the, the, you know, the treadmill of life. Going, 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 going. So they won't have to slow down and consider that they need something more. Busyness will not fill up the emptiness of your life. Some people try religious ritual. If I can just get involved in the right denomination and do religious things, go to services and learn prayers and do the different things required of me, then I'll be happy. But we've all learned, haven't we, that religion is a far cry from relationship. And religious ritual that is divorced from a personal relationship with God is empty and vain and it will not satisfy. It won't. People are trying it, but it will not satisfy. As a matter of fact, Jesus, uh, the Lord said, To the nation of Israel, he said, you honor me with your lips. You're doing all the religious stuff. You're keeping the the law and the Sabbath and the sacrificial system. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Did you know it's possible to be religious and to be far from God? It's possible to be real religious and be far from God? It's possible to attend a church or be a part of a denomination and be very far from God. Religion does not satisfy the deepest longing of our soul. Some people try spirituality. These folks say, well, listen, I don't like organized religion. I don't want to do anything with any kind of church or denomination. I just want to do my own thing and experience God in a way that is in tune with my emotions and my place in life. And it's and it's this soupy, frothy spirituality that really has no basis. There's no foundation. It's just whatever someone wants to believe at the moment. They think, if I could just be spiritual and tell people I'm spiritual, well, that'll, that'll satisfy. But they're just tossed to and fro with every wind and wave and idea. 
and their soul is never fulfilled. And this is just a partial list of all the things people try to fulfill the deepest longings of their soul, all the places people look. But here is the reality. Blaise Pascal says it like this in his apologetic work, Pensees, in 1670. He says, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he, man, tries in vain to fill with everything around him though none can help since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. Blaise Pascal, this brilliant Christian in the 1600s said, listen, only God can fill up that infinite hole in your heart because only God is infinite. He's the only one that can satisfy the, the, the cravings and, and, and hungering of your soul. So let me say it like this. A relationship with God through Jesus Christ is the only thing that will satisfy your spiritual hunger. A relationship with God through Jesus Christ is the only thing that will satisfy your spiritual hunger. Over in John 6, 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. So he's the only answer to the deepest needs of your life. I like the way Augustine says that he was an early church father. Augustine said, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and your heart is restless and you know it. Your heart will continue to be restless until you find your fulfillment in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He's the only one that will satisfy your soul. And so, Jesus saves. And and Jesus satisfies. But here's the third thing, very quickly. Jesus secures. Jesus secures. Look what the Bible says down in verse 36 of John 6. Jesus says, but I said to you that you have uh, seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You and I, we can have great confidence that our relationship with Jesus is unbreakable. In other words, once you enter into a relationship with Christ, you'll never lose it. You are eternally secure in him. Let me say it like this. Jesus finishes what he starts. Look what he says down in verse 39. He says, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So he's saying, Hey, if you come to me, if you believe in me, I will finish what I started. I will raise you up on the last day. Now, what's he talking about by raising folks up on the last day? Well, let me just explain it to you like this. If I were to drop dead right now in front of you, immediately my, my, my soul would go to heaven to be with Christ. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, right? 2 Corinthians 5. But my body would still be here, and hopefully you'd have some kind of service for me, hopefully, all right? 
and, and you, would, you would bury my body. Well, Jesus promised that he would raise up my body on the last day. In the end times, Jesus Christ will return and he will raise up my old corrupted body. And when it's raised, it will be a brand new, imperishable, incorruptible body. And at that moment, when my new body is raised up from the ground, my soul that was in heaven with Jesus will be reunited with my body. And I'll live in that new body forever and ever and ever and ever in heaven in the presence of God. Jesus will finish what he starts, right? And if you know him and you die and your body goes into the ground like it will and dissolves into dust, one day Jesus Christ will come back and raise you up on that last day. A new body to experience heaven in. That's good, isn't it? Because our bodies are wearing out, aren't they? I mean, I tell people this and it, and it, kind, of, it kind of makes people you know, feel bad, but it's true. We, every day we're one step closer to our death. <laughs> right? Every day, we're one step closer to our appointment with death. Our bodies will not last forever. They will eventually wear out, right? But Jesus says, hey, if you're mine, if you've embraced me as the bread of life, you're mine and nothing will change that. I'll never cast you out and I'll raise you up on the last day. I will finish what I start. So Jesus saves and Jesus satisfies and Jesus secures. And those ideas are all tied up in that metaphor that Jesus is the bread of life. So here's the big question. You may be out there today and say, okay, Wade, I, I'm convinced. I need Jesus He's the one that will satisfy my soul. He's the one that will save me from my sins. He's the one that will keep me secure. How do I receive the bread of life? Look how Jesus answers the question in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then fast forward down to verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So salvation and satisfaction and security are yours when you place your faith in the finished work of Jesus. It's when you recognize, hey, the direction I'm going will lead me to hell. I can't save myself. So I turn and I trust that Jesus died for me. Jesus rose from the grave. He's my only hope. And because I believe that, I will call on his name and ask him to save me. Romans 10.9 says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Romans 10.13 says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So you believe Christ is your hope and you call on his name in faith to save you. That's how you are saved. It's just that simple. That's how you receive Jesus as the bread of life. Now, near the end of John chapter 6, Jesus is teaching the crowds, and it became really apparent to the crowds that Jesus didn't leave heaven and come to earth to wow folks. He came to save folks. He wasn't there to entertain them. He was there to be their Lord and Savior, and he was calling on them to follow him and embrace him fully. And they realized that Jesus wasn't just there for party tricks, that he wanted their allegiance. The Bible says the multi- thousands of folks turned around and left. 
They wanted nothing to do with putting their life in Jesus' hands. And at that moment, Jesus turned and looked at his disciples who were still there with him. And he said, you don't want to go away too, do you? And Peter said this. He said, Lord, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. So if you're here today and you say, wait, you know, this Jesus stuff, not really for me. I'm not ready. It's not time. You know, I've got some other things in my life that I need to be concerned about. Uh, no thank you. And, and, and if you're going to turn your back to Jesus today, here's my question. Where are you going to go? Who else or what else is going to save your soul and satisfy your deep spiritual hunger and keep you secure, giving you hope beyond the grave? Who else is going to do that for you? Where else would you go? You see, Jesus is our only option if we want to be saved. And so if you're here today and you're far from God and you know it, Today can be your day of salvation. And here's the point to kind of tie all this together because the the sermon series is titled, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Here's what I want you to walk away with. From the house of bread, Bethlehem, from the house of bread came the bread of life. When you sing O Little Town of Bethlehem or when you read about Bethlehem in your Bible, you hear someone talking about Bethlehem, I want you to remember it's the house of bread. And aren't you glad that from the house of bread came the bread of life. And he saves. And he satisfies. And he keeps us secure. Where else would we go?